If you have a Bible this morning, please open it to Exodus chapter 3 as we continue to read through uh, that beautiful, beautiful book. Um, as you're doing that, I'd like to read a quote from the great A.W. Tozer. He writes, The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he, in his deepest heart, conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God, and the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. I think what Tozer says there is very true. I think we can shorthand that entire paragraph by simply saying, you become what you worship. So knowledge of God, knowing who he is, knowing how he acts and what he does and why he does those things, becomes the central tenet of every religion. It is why it is the most important thing that we can possibly think of or take time to consider. Whatever you believe God to be is what you will one day become. So if your God is a God who takes, who demands much and gives little, you will also model this. If you consider that God is primarily a vengeful God who seeks justice by punishing those who go even an inch out of step, you will tend towards that sense of justice. If you think of God primarily a fun God, one who likes a good laugh, one who loves to joke with his people and with nature, you will be the same. Some have incredibly wrong views on the nature of God. They think that God is a God who cares little about holiness or justice, but really just wants his creatures to have fun and wants to help them become who they truly are, that he has made them to be, and, and really doesn't care about anything that we might say is concerning holiness. Others might think that because God is primarily a God of order, he will not tolerate any humor at all. More so, I think that many people in the Christian church have a right understanding of the nature of God, but if we are wrong in a way, it's because we're taking one characteristic or one attribute of God to the detriment of others. So you might think that God is a just God and highlight his justice over and against his mercy. In doing so, you might end up, at best, a boring scold or worse, a totalitarian despot. You, you might prioritize his mercy over justice and not think that, that there needs to be some stricture of holiness within the church. It may be even today that you're considering that sort of remedial teaching on the very nature of God is something that we have gone over before and, and we've covered and we should move on to other things. You don't really need to be reminded of that again. And, and frankly, for a lot of us, maybe, maybe that's true this morning. Maybe you have been so covered in your reading of Scripture and so deep in your thoughts of God that these reminders of the very nature of God are not things that you truly need. But while such reminders are good for us, and we probably are doing well to go over them again, even more so, we need to be reminded continuously of the nature of God because of that Tozer quote before. 
Because when we get a little errant in our thinking about God, when we prioritize something of God over against another attribute of God or something else that God wants to present himself by, when we misrepresent God, even in our best intentions, we inch closer and closer to idolatry. We are sinful when we sin in areas it is in one sense directly attributable to the fact that we have a wrong understanding about God. We think that he doesn't care about our sin or frankly he condones our sin. It's okay that I'm angry. God would be okay with my anger. God would be okay with the way in which I'm living my life. Or that God simply overlooks sin. He's got more important things to worry about. Or some other such reason which is grounded only in our desires and not really in God's revelation of himself. Which is why, in order to make sure that we are thinking right about Scripture or thinking right about God and thinking right about the way in which he is presenting himself to us, we come continually back to Scripture so that we can be sharpened in our thinking, so that the balance of God's attributes can be found and refined and our knowledge of God can be deepened. But each and every one of us no matter how much refining we might need, at one point or time or another, had to be directly introduced to this God. We are not born with the knowledge of who God is or what he is like. And that is perhaps true for someone in here this morning, but it is definitely, I think, true of Moses this morning. Moses is about to meet God. This will not be the last time God will be with him God will continue to reveal himself to Moses in deeper and deeper fashion, but this is at least God's first primary introduction to Moses. And he will learn much from this introduction about who this God is that he will spend the rest of his life serving, and I pray that we can learn much from it as well. The length of our passage this morning is we're going through a narrative book in the Old Testament. It's going to be a little longer, and so we're going to take it in chunks with each point this morning. And so let us read these first four verses together. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. These first four verses, I think we can find first that God is being. God is being. And I know what you're probably thinking is being what? You need to kind of fill that in. He's being a little odd. He's, he's being uh, mysterious. He's being a flame. He's being something. No, I, I mean he is just being. He is pure being. Moses is minding his business, looking after the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, who is the same person we met in chapter 2, just a different name, Ruel, has his name changed to Jethro, multiple names for the same person, same guy. He's minding his own business, and he looks, and he sees this bush that's on fire. The, the weird thing is the bush isn't being consumed. 
Now, there is an oddity in this that I'm going to mention just in passing. Uh, It would take a lot more time to actually get into the details of it because it's a mystery that kind of follows us throughout the Old Testament, and that is this angel of the Lord. It seems like there is a creature here that is sent from God as an angel of the Lord, but in the rest of the passage, he is speaking directly for God as though God is speaking to Moses. I'll be quite honest with you. In a number of instances in the Old Testament, I don't know what's going on. Okay, so you have these representatives of God at times acting as though they are speaking so much for God that the words of God are on their mouth and people treat those angels as though they are God himself. The best answer for this particular passage that I could give to you is that angel here might not just be a creature. It might not mean that there is a distinct creature, but as angel can be a representative It could just mean that this is a a form of representation that God is taking. He represented himself as a flame of fire around this bush. That makes sense to me. I don't think that you can make sense of every appearance of the angel of the Lord in that same way, but I just thought we would clarify that before we got into it. But he sees this angel of the Lord. He sees it as fire. He says, that is, you know, what he says is, I will turn aside to see this great sight, which means, Wow, that is really strange. I'm going to go check that out because that that is very, very unique. Now, we know something that Moses doesn't, and that is we know the things that it requires for fire to be present. So fire needs a source. It needs something to consume. It needs a, a fuel, if you will. It needs oxygen, and it needs a spark. Now, Moses probably would have known that something needs to start a fire, Obviously, it was not Billy Joel in this case, but we don't know exactly who it was. But this fire is going, so he knows he needs a spark. He knows nothing about oxygen, but he knows this. Fire eats. It consumes. And our initial response to reading this, if, if you're anything like me, is to think about the unique nature of the bush. But it's not the bush that's unique. It's the fire that's unique. Fire always needs to eat. It needs to consume. It relies upon something else to exist. And that's the whole point of having the fire burn on a bush but not consume it because this fire needs nothing to exist. It doesn't need oxygen to exist. It doesn't need the bush to exist. It doesn't need anything to exist. It is a picture of God himself. God is not reliant upon anything else. He exists all and completely and totally on his own. He was not created. He is not contingent. He is not insufficient in any way. Just like this burning flame. Burns and burns and burns, but the bush never gets consumed because it's not needing to consume it. This is horribly different than all of the other gods in existence in the ancient Near East realize how distinct this aspect of God was. Even as you go through the Greek gods, the thing that was always constant for all of them was matter. Matter was always there. And these gods might have been born out of matter. They might have come out of matter. But matter is the thing that has always existed. But not this God. This God makes matter. He doesn't come from it. He's not contingent upon it. He can exist over and against it and above it and beyond it. He is pure being. His existence doesn't depend on our existence, on our praise, on our worship, on our response. Everything in this universe is dependent upon him. These people who are in Egypt will worship 
the gods of the sun and the stars and the moon, the gods that they find all around them, those gods always, in some way, shape, or form, are representations or have powers over or come from the matter of the earth. But this God is before all things. And all things that are existent come from him. God is being. Let us continue on and read verse 5. Very briefly, he says, Do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. Secondly and briefly, God is not just being, but God is holy. God is holy. If you were to read through from Genesis into Exodus, you would find that holiness doesn't have a huge place in Scripture up until this point. And you might not even know what holiness is. If you were just a novice reading, if you had never heard anything about holiness and you were reading this Bible for the first time and you came up upon this word, you would rightly ask, what is holiness? What, what exactly is God saying about this place? What does it mean for a place and for a God to be holy? God gives us a hint here, just as he, I think, gives Moses a hint here, although it's a cultural hint that doesn't make a lick of sense to the vast majority of us. We take off our shoes because we don't want to get dirt in the house, or we take off our shoes because our feet are more comfortable outside of our shoes. Asking Moses to take off his shoes was not to make Moses more comfortable. It wasn't because God was afraid of a little bit of dirt. It was solely because this was a way for Moses to show honor to the one he was taking his shoes off for and to humble himself. Now, we don't think of shoes that way. There are still cultures in the world that do. And certainly the ancient Near East thought of shoes that exact same way. God is holy, which means he is to be honored. In context, it also means that Moses is to be humbled before him because Moses is not as great as this God. This God is great above all things. And even his holiness, being great and above all things, is is kind of the summation of every attribute of God coming down into one. His holiness is so great that it even permeates the very ground around which he stands. So that when God appears, where he appears becomes holy. We know that this Effect happens, but it often happens for us in reverse. We've been introduced to that in Genesis. When sin happens, we infect the ground. We defile it. Instead of making it holy, what human beings in our sinful state typically do is defile the place, which when we go through, if you were to read through not just Exodus, but into Leviticus, you'll find that even the tabernacle where God is going to dwell needs to be atoned for by the spilling of blood, because our sinfulness has defiled not just the land that we are in, but the very tabernacle itself. God here is so perfect and holy and mighty and powerful that he spreads his holiness as it radiates out from him so that the land upon which Moses is treading is nothing but holy ground. God's holiness makes holy And our sin defiles. And there is one man in the world only who ever worked opposite from the way every one of us works. From this point on out, we're going to find that continually throughout Scripture, when the holy meets the defiled, unless that holy thing is God, that holy thing becomes defiled. It never flows the opposite way. When you bring something that is holy into contact with something that is defiled, that thing which is defiled never becomes more holy. Entropy works in one direction. 
so that if you are holy and you've been set aside for God and you have cleansed yourself and yet you have to go deal with a dead animal carcass or you have to deal with some skin disease, you are now defiled and you've got to be, you've got to be cleaned all over again. You've got to be made holy all over again. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is the one person that this works in reverse with, that he can come up to the dead and give them life again, that he can come up to diseases and make them whole again and never lose a lick of his holiness and his goodness and his righteousness. This is simply the beginning of that. God is holy, 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 and therefore that which God touches becomes holy as well. Moses removes his sandals out of respect for the very presence of God. Let us read on from verses 6 through 10. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Here, we see that God is compassionate. God is compassionate. He reminds Moses of who he is. Moses might, might be rightly kind of flummoxed. Maybe Moses doesn't know anything about this God. We have no indication that he does. We know that he knows somehow that he belongs to the Hebrew people. But remember, he was raised in an Egyptian household. We have no idea if Moses knows the name of God, if Moses has ever heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or how much even of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he has even heard. So God introduces himself to him and says very clearly, I know what my people are going through. I've heard their cries. I've seen the oppression that is upon them. Don't know what the delay has been for. Genesis gives us a hint that it's about the sin in Canaan, but nevertheless, why God has delayed so long in bringing salvation to his people, we don't understand. Moses, by this time, is now pushing 80 years old. His life has gone by in a flash. The next 40 years are going to take some time. They're going to feel very long to Moses indeed. We don't know why God delays. But what we do know is this. We ought never doubt the compassion that he has for his people, the love and the tenderness that he has for them. He knows that they are being oppressed. He has heard their cries, and he is coming now to act on their behalf. He reminds Moses of the covenant that he has. And it's kind of important. You, you, you ought not think that he reminds Moses of the covenant he has in order to say, well, yeah, so God's going to intervene now, but it's just because he's like contractually obligated to. He said he would, and it doesn't really mean he's compassionate. It just means that he likes to kind of hang by the law. 
Well, that might be true if that covenant wasn't ratified when God said before the people ever went down into Egypt that I'm going to send them down there so that I might deliver them. He sends them there in compassion to keep them from dying in a famine, and now he comes to get them in compassion that he might give them a good land. He is taking them from a land of slavery to their own land, a land that is not like the land of the curse, but he says a land flowing with milk and honey. This doesn't mean that there's like hot honey springs or something, right? What it means is that the land, notice both milk and honey are the end of the line for food production in that time, okay? So if you've got fertile soil, fertile soil produces good plants. Good plants produce good animals. Good animals produce good milk and good bees produce good honey. Honey and milk are the end of the line for food production. It means that everything is good, you're not, you're not sweating for it. You're not working for it. This stuff just kind of grows up out of the ground. It flows with milk and honey. God's compassion for his people is rich and deep. God is reminding us, and at the very least, telling Moses in no uncertain terms that he knows his people's cries. He has heard them, and he is coming to rescue them. He does have this, Moses probably thinking, this is all great news. I'm glad to hear it. I tried to do this a couple years ago. God, it didn't work out very well. I'm glad to know that you're on the case now. He's probably super excited until he comes to verse 10 when he says, I will send you, okay? And now Moses is going to raise his hand and he's got some objections to this. This is where we find out point number four, that God is proven. God is proven. God is compassionate, but God is proven. Let us read verses 11 through 14. Moses said to God, who, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, Oh, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God is proven. Moses' chief problems noted last week continue here. Moses is part of two distinct worlds and so he belongs to none. He looks at Pharaoh and he says, I'm I'm going to go into Pharaoh. I know that apparently you think that I'm the right man for this job, but I've got no standing before Pharaoh. Perhaps you heard that I belonged to his household at one time, but I'm running from him now. What, what in the world, why do you think Pharaoh is going to listen to me? And God's answer is kind of odd, both to him about Pharaoh and to him about the people of Israel. To Pharaoh, God says, well, how am I supposed to answer that? How, how, how am I supposed to prove to you that Pharaoh is going to listen to you. So this is how you're going to know. The only time you could possibly know that, the only way I could possibly prove that to you is to say this, there will be a day when you will return here with the people of Israel and you will stand before me at this mountain and you will worship me. In other words, there is no proof for that. There's no proof other than the doing. You have to do it. You have got to trust me in order for this to work. And so Moses has that second objection about the people of Israel. I don't really belong to Pharaoh. He's not going to listen to me. And the people of Israel have already rejected me. I don't think they're going to listen to me either. They're going to ask me about the name. Scholars go back and forth. Why ask about the name? Is it because they knew the name of the Lord and they were testing Moses? 
I don't know that that's the case. I think primarily it's, it's likely because names convey information about gods. They convey information about people, and here they want to know, what is this God like? This God that you say is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom we haven't heard from in 400 years, what is this God like? What's his name that we can know anything about him? And so God tells him, I am who I am, and you are to say to the people, I am has sent me to you. There's no shortage of speculation as to what the name actually means or how we are to actually pronounce it. It's unlikely that the word Jehovah correctly encapsulates what the name is supposed to be. The, the English Yahweh is probably as close as you're going to get, but I can almost guarantee you that you're going to pronounce it differently than Moses did. So we're not exactly sure what it is. Yahweh is probably as close as we can get. What does it mean? The very beginning, I would say that it means something close to, at some level, to what we've already said the fire in the bush means. God is. He simply is. He is the God who exists. He is that he is. I am. I am the being. I am the one who is existence. Tell them that existence is coming to them. The very thing that gives life and breath to all men, who creates all things, that is who is coming to them. But I think it means something else as well. It could easily be translated, I am what I will be. I think that's pretty helpful for the people of Israel. I have nothing wrong with speaking, using words to describe the nature of God. I'd kind of be out of a job if that was the case. So I'm very thankful that I can use words to describe God and to talk about God, and that's helpful. We can, we can talk about how God is caring, compassionate, loving, and mighty. We spent time this week teaching our young ones in VBS that God is omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he's all-powerful. All these things, we, we talk about those things, and we, we rightly talk about the attributes of God, and we speak about the attributes of God. But what God wants to tell Moses is this. You could talk to the Israelites all day about who I am. And that's not going to matter for them. What they need to know is this. They will eventually know me because of what I do. It's just like you. You can tell people who you are all day. You can tell people that you're compassionate, that you're loving, that you're caring. But the proof is in actually being those things. You are not what you say you are. You are what you do. God is looking at them and saying, I am what I will show you I am. I am what I will be. Do you think me as mighty? You, what are you going to take the word mighty to them and throw it down at their feet? He is a mighty God. They have no idea what might is. I will show them. going to throw out the word compassionate as we've done. He's caring loving. He says, I will show them my concern for them. They think that they know my wrath. I will show them what my wrath is like. They think that I am a warrior. Well, I will show them how I am a warrior. This is so much different than all the other gods. The other gods are claimed to be gods of fertility or gods of, of produce or, or gods of fame and fortune. They're they're claiming these things, but they don't always deliver. 
You work with these fertility gods. You, you want to have kids. You pray about it and you go to your little shrine and you offer because this is the God of fertility and you give to them and you still aren't fertile. God says no, but you are going to know me. Not by what I tell you I can do, but what I actually do. And truly what's interesting about all of that is that this mirrors exactly what Jesus says in the book of John. He goes around talking about who he is. He says, hey, I, I do the very things that my father does. The father and I are one. And people object to this kind of language. They say, you can't say that about yourself. That's, that's heresy. That's, that's blasphemy. Don't you know that? And what does Jesus say? Okay, you got a problem with the words. That's great. If you don't want to believe the words, fine. But believe the works that I'm doing. Look at the things that I'm doing and you tell me who I am. God doesn't just declare who he is. Perfectly happy to do that. He proves who he is time and time again. Fifth. The rest of chapter three is what we'll read next as we consider that God is meticulous. God is meticulous. Read with me in verses 15 through 22. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. God is meticulous. I am a big picture person. I can envision what I want to have happen. And then my wife will ask me questions about how that's going to happen. And I will think about them at the moment and try to give her answers until I realize that I'm just making stuff up and then I will say, I actually haven't thought through this at all. I have no idea how any of this is going to happen and I wouldn't have even thought to ask those questions which are legitimately good questions because I'm not a detailed person. I, I, I struggle kind of connecting point A to point B. I know I want to go to point B, but I really just don't know how to do all the things that we need to do to get there. Otherwise, we would probably have ended up on a couple of trips in the middle of North Dakota in the winter without any clothing at all. And uh, thanks to my wife, we have avoided that so far. So being a detailed person is helpful. God is both a big picture person and a detailed person. God is meticulous. He knows what he's going to do for the people of Israel. 
He is going to deliver them, but he knows more than that. He knows precisely how he's going to deliver them. He knows who he's going to use to deliver them. And what's more, here, he looks at Moses and he tells Moses exactly what he is to say to the three groups of people that need to hear it. He says, here's what you're going to say to the nation of Israel. Here's what you're going to say to the elders of Israel. Here's what you're going to say to Pharaoh. And what's more, I know that when you're released, the Hebrew people are in absolutely no shape to be going out into the wilderness with what they're wearing and what they owe. So here's what's going to happen. Women are going to look at the other women in their house. They're going to say, hey, can I have some gold and silver jewelry? And they're going to say, absolutely, just get out. God is a God who is meticulously in control. He says, here's what you're going to say to the nation. The Lord has sent me to you. He is the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses is the one that he has sent. To the elders, he is much more specific. Same basic idea. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses has been sent to you, but he goes on to talk about he will deliver you into another land, that land that is flowing with milk and honey. And what's more, he says, the elders will listen to you. He gives no assurance about the people, but he says the elders will listen to you. That's all that matters. The elders are going to listen to him. The people will go along. And then he says, and you and the elders collectively are going to go into Pharaoh and you're going to talk to him. There is no mention of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because Pharaoh just doesn't care about that. But he does need to know he's the God of the Hebrews. He says three days. You're going to ask him for just three days to go out off into the wilderness. Many people get frustrated by that little phrase, three days. It seems to them like a lie because God has no intention of pulling his people out for three days. The three days are just there to show the hatred that Pharaoh has for the people. God has given him a quick out. You are worried about losing my people. They will go three days and I will bring them back. And Pharaoh's hard-heartedness and his reticence to let the people go will be punished upon him because not only will God take them out forever, but he will take them out and allow them to plunder the people of Egypt. God knows that the people will need much. There will be wars along the way. They will need to buy things along the way. They will need clothing. They will need help. So God prepares. He does this completely outside of the way plundering normally happens. Plundering is usually done by guys, and it's usually done by guys with the edges of knives and swords and spears. But in this case, so great will the arm of the Lord be shown that they will do everything they can to push them out. And all the women will have to do is to go to their neighbors and say, hey, can we have stuff? And they will shove it at them. Just get out of our face. To make up for all of the work that they did as slaves, they will be paid back by the people of Egypt and they will leave. God's care and compassion for his people exist in his meticulous plan of how he is going to give them from point A to point B. He doesn't just have a picture in mind and hoping that it works out. He has a picture in mind and knows every single step of the way and how he's going to get his people there. And his care and compassion for his people and for you exists over everything that happens to you as well. It isn't just that God knows where he wants to get you. And there might be some things that catch him by surprise, and there are some things that he was, wasn't planning on, and some things that he didn't want to have happen, but kind of happened anyways. No, God, God has meticulously planned every insignificant detail in your life. He knows about it. He has foreordained it. He is watching over it to make it happen for your good. When we sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. That doesn't just mean he's got the whole thing. 
It means he's got everything in the world in his hands. Every atom, every molecule, every movement that you make and decision that happens every day. God is a meticulous God. God is also patient. Read the first nine verses there of chapter four. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord didn't appear to you. The Lord said to him, "Uh, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign. They may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground. And the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God is patient. Moses has noted twice now his difficulty in this task. Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. The Israelites aren't going to listen to me. God has specifically told him in 3.18, you're going to go, you're going to speak to the elders, and you know what's going to happen? They will listen to you. And Moses just flat out denies him here. He looks at him and says, "Ah, you know, it's a nice plan, but honestly, I've talked to these people before. They ain't listening to me. God just patiently says, okay, I'll help you out. You should have just gone. You should have just made your way doing what I asked you to do. But you you want some help? I will provide you help. God isn't a God who flies off the handle in anger. He will become angry with Moses in this passage. But even then, we will find that his anger is incredibly restrained. He is so patient and kind. Instead of lecturing him as though he should know, he realizes that Moses likely has no idea what this God is. What Moses is used to is what the people are used to, which are fickle gods who are not good to their word. He can't trust God because he's never been able to truly trust a God. So God says, I will help you. I'll give you signs. Staff will become a snake. Your hand will become leprous. It'll at least be diseased in some way, and then it will be restored And you will pour out water and it will become as blood on the ground. And and the people will understand and they will listen to you. And in order to show it, he doesn't just make Moses trust his word here. He shows them this. He says, throw the staff on the ground and it becomes a snake. Realistic. Because it's real. And Moses hides from it. He's terrified of it. Yet when he touches it again, he's starting to believe. Starting to trust this God. You can tell that he's starting to trust the God because after he throws it down and it becomes a snake, where does he tell him to grab it? By the tail. Let me tell you, if you've never actually handled snakes before, I'm not great at this, but I will tell you this, the tail is about the last place I'm ever going to grab a snake because that leaves the front end perfectly capable of coming around and biting your hand. And so he says, grab it by the tail, 
God specifically tells him to grab it in the worst possible spot. Why? Because Moses should learn to trust him. God is patient. He's kind. He's no less patient with us. There are plenty of times that he asks us to do things that we are patently unwilling to do. And why are we unwilling to do it? I would say oftentimes it's just from a lack of faith that God has asked us to do what is good and right and true, and we think that there's a better way or there's a better thing that we ought to be spending our time on. If we truly believe that God said that this is right for us and good for us, we would do it. You would help your neighbor without thinking about it, no matter how much of a pain he is. You would confess your sins to God and to those you have offended, no matter how difficult you think it might be. You would speak to others of the glory of Christ freely and openly if you thought for a second that God would be good to his word to bring faith to them. No doubt these things are difficult for you. Some cases more difficult for some than others, just as it was difficult for Moses. But God is patient. He's not overly angry when you actually decide to get around to doing something. He doesn't say, ah, well, it's it's about time. Took you long enough. I've been waiting here for a long time. He's not going to throw it back in your face because he's patient. He's willing to work with you. He knows that you're stubborn. He knows that you're slow. And he's patient and kind to help you get to where you need to be, just as he is here with Moses. His patience continues in verses 10 through 17, although we find something else different here about God as well. God is not just patient. God is pragmatic. God is pragmatic. Verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your your hand the staff, with which you shall do all the signs. God is incredibly pragmatic. And what I mean by that is he's, he's got practical solutions to things. Moses is simply not having it. It's not now the problem with the people out there. It's now the problem with Moses. He says, Mo, Lord, I, I, I would do this, but I don't speak no too good. And, and I, I don't know exactly how I'm supposed to speak. And this is primarily a speaking role in the little play we got going here. And, and I don't think I'm the right guy for it. And, and maybe you should pick somebody else. And God simply says, I don't think you understand who I am. I am the one who exists and everything has come from me. I'm the one who forms your mouth. I'm the one in control of everything. If I wanted to make you speak well, brother, I can make you speak well. He says at the end of all of that, to be honest, I just don't want to go. Can you just, just send somebody else? Again, 
God's anger is kindled by this, but he's restrained, he's kind. He provides a solution Moses can't seem to turn down. He gives him companionship and help, even from his brother Aaron. He says, he's headed to you. He's going to be super happy to see you. Even though God could have done a number of very miraculous things, even in the middle of speaking, God could have changed Moses' speech. He could have fixed Moses. That's exactly what he says. Don't you know who I am? I'm, I form mouths. I make people mute and I make them speak. I make them blind and I make them see. I can, I can do this. He could have done it at that very moment. He could have looked at Moses and said, I know you didn't know speak no well, but now you're going to be fluent. Your voice is going to sound beautiful. It will have a rich timber to it and everyone will come flooding just to hear you speak, Moses. You will be the orator of all orators. It doesn't do that. The real problem that Moses has is Moses doesn't believe him enough. Clearly, God can fix that. Faith is a gift. God could have just zapped him. He could have just changed him, momentarily given him an immense display of faith where he said, I don't know if I can speak well, but this God is sending me, so I'm just going to go. He doesn't do that either. Rather, he just sends a friend sends Aaron to him. And Aaron misses you, and Aaron wants to see you, and and I will use the two of you. As I speak to you, you will speak to him, and he will speak to the people. You are going to be like God to him, and he will be the mediator between you and the people. We oftentimes pray and want these sort of miraculous events to happen. Sometimes God's help is seen as lightning strikes from the sky, and sometimes it's in miraculous healings. But just as often, it's in the plain, old, everyday things. His love is not seen in a mysterious feeling that overcomes you. His love is seen in the fact that his people come around you and love you. Sometimes his wisdom is not seen with, with a light bulb that goes off in your head from the middle of nowhere. Sometimes that light bulb goes off because you've got a friend who is willing to tell you is willing to explain things to you, willing to give you his own best wisdom. God oftentimes uses very practical and pragmatic things. Not always does he need to use miracles to make things happen for him. And very, very, very well may be that this is Moses' first introduction to the God of his fathers. He might not have ever heard of him before, maybe only in passing. We would do well to realize that Moses is going to know God much better in the future. He will go through 40 years of walking with this God, 40 years of seeing him do miraculous things almost on a daily basis. As he leads God's people, he will find indeed that what God is saying here is true. He is powerful, he is kind, he is merciful, he is gracious to his people. Let us also remember that we have much more confirmation than Moses has. The text is meant for us to see the goodness and power of God. True. But all of this is better seen in the coming of Jesus Christ himself. His very nature as being the God who simply is is best seen in the fact that Jesus can raise others simply by speaking a word. And even in texts where it talks about Jesus having the authority to raise even himself from the dead. Who can do that but the God who is? People who die don't have power to do that. Only gods who exist forevermore have the power to do that. His holiness 
is best displayed in the fact that he provides healing in dealing with ourselves on the cross. He doesn't ignore our sin. He doesn't ignore our evil. But he gives holiness by dealing with our sin, by taking it upon himself. And his compassion is seen in the fact that Jesus does this while we were yet sinners, dying for us, giving us life instead of the death that we were owed. His nature is indeed proven in what Christ has done. His meticulous nature is shown in the fact that he has done everything that he needs to to give us our redemption. God has left nothing up to chance, either in bringing his people out of Egypt, and he has left nothing out of chance, nothing up to chance, when it comes to leading his people in salvation. He reveals himself. He elects us. He regenerates us. He justifies us. He redeems us. He liberates us. He expiates our sin. He reconciles us. He adopts us. He provides us with our sanctification. And ultimately, he provides us with our glorification. God has planned out everything. He has done everything. And his patience is shown in Jesus. Not just to overlook for centuries and centuries and centuries the sin of his people that he will forgive until the coming of Jesus, but in our lives. How patient is Jesus with us? Knowing what he has called us to knowing the great salvation that he has given to us, that at times we just overlook in order to dabble in the world, and yet Jesus is so patient and kind and waiting. His pragmatism is also shown in Jesus. God builds his church not through raw displays of power, not through miraculous things, not even through fog machines, The church of God is built by the simple proclamation of the gospel. By a man in a suit telling people that Jesus died for them. That is about the most unmiraculous thing in the world. And that is the very thing that God uses to build his church. All of these things demonstrate the very nature of God, not just here in Exodus, but all of the things that you might want to ever say about the God of Exodus are best displayed in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth because he is the revelation of God. And the goal of Crossway and of every other church is to be nothing more than that bush to have the presence of God with us, to have the fire of God among us, not to consume us, but as a display of his nature, of his power, of his beauty, of his glory, so that we might show others, like Moses, the unique, ineffable, beautiful, holy, nature of our God as a mystery, but also as a very simple proclamation. Jesus Christ is Lord. So let's be that, as we would say, for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. God, we pray that that might truly be the case this morning, that the glory of our God in Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
by the power of the Holy Spirit might be seen in your people this morning. Help us to know you better, to see and to trust in you more, that the world might stand in awe of who our God is. Forgive us when we sin. Mold us in the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may our lives glorify you forever. We ask these things in the precious and beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.